Have you ever wondered what the resurrection will be like? Um, and I'm distinguishing between the resurrection and heaven here because, you know, heaven is where those who have trusted in Jesus and put their faith in him will go after their souls depart their bodies. But the resurrection is what will happen when Jesus returns and when he remakes the heavens and the earth and all those who believe are brought back to life and resurrected and glorified bodies. Have you ever wondered what that day would be like? Maybe you've wondered, you know, if the globes will be the same, but, you know, the great plains will be restored back to their wonder with the great herds of buffalo and the waves of rolling grain. Maybe you've wondered what we might physically be capable of in those days. I often have found myself repeatedly kind of pondering just the concept of eternity, the idea that we'll exist forever, just trying to wrap my head around what that would be like. And honestly, there are moments that just gave me anxiety and I had to stop and think of something else instead. And maybe you have questions, just curious, or maybe you have questions about it that come from a place like mine sometimes of worry or anxiety. You're concerned about what will or won't be there. This morning in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 20, there's going to be a group of people who come to ask Jesus their question about the resurrection. And their question is about marriage and whether that isn't, isn't going to be in the resurrection. But Jesus, when he answers it, he doesn't speak to answer just their specific question about what that's going to be like. He really answers in a way that I think speaks to all of the questions that we might have about what the resurrection holds for those who trust in Jesus. And so if you have your Bible, if you turn with me to Luke chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 27 and we're going to go all the way to 44. We're going to read all of it, as is our normal habit, just so we can hear from God's words first before we hear from me. So if you would, stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. And there came to him some Sadducees who denied that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterwards, the woman also died. And so in the resurrection, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but the living, for all live to him. And some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they dared not ask him any question. But he said to them, How can some say Christ is David's son? For David himself in the book of Psalms says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would come here this morning, that you would help us to bring you our questions. More than just bringing you our questions, I pray that we would listen and we would hear your answers, that we would read your word, that it would, you would meditate on it, and that you would help illuminate it to us, that we can understand what it is you have to teach us here this morning. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can take a seat. Our, our first point this morning, I really kind of have one long point 
it's three points, but it's one point. You, you'll get it as we go. But your first blanks, if you're taking notes in your bulletin, is don't ask the wrong questions about the resurrection. Um, don't ask the wrong questions about the resurrection. You see, the problem in this passage is really not the conundrum that the Sadducees are going to offer Jesus. Um, the problem is they're not asking the right questions to Jesus. And so let's look, what kind of question are they asking? 27, there come some Sadducees, and they deny that there is a resurrection. Now, there's a lot of historical information you can get about the Sadducees. They're different than the Pharisees. They're a totally different kind of faction or group, and they really don't like each other at all. And they're both kind of jockeying for power. And the Sadducees really probably had a little more religious power than the Pharisees did. We, there's reason to believe they kind of had a firm grip and control over the temple, and they held to a very literal reading of God's Word. They would insist on a plain reading of the text, and they didn't want anyone to read anything in the Bible that wasn't there. Now, that sounds really good, but if you're too strict on that, it can lead you to other problems. That's the only way you read the Bible, because ultimately, but ultimately, really, the only thing you need to know about the Sadducees is what Luke tells us. They don't believe in the resurrection. Some of you might remember the children's kind of adage, you know, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, that's why they were sad, you see. So there's that, if you haven't heard that in a while. So they read their Bibles, but they don't see the resurrection. They think the whole idea of life after death is foolish, that God will come back and bring life and back to life those who have gone on with new bodies is nonsense, and so they deny it. And so the question that they ask Jesus is rooted in this denial of the resurrection. They're asking questions about the resurrection not because they're interested, not because they want to understand it. They're asking questions because they think it's a bunch of junk and they want to prove that it's foolish. So then we read their question in 28. They ask him a question, teacher, Moses wrote for us, if a man's brother dies, having no wife, or having a wife but no children, the man has to take the widow, raise up offspring for his brother. Now there's seven brothers, they take a wife and dies. And the second takes her, and the third, and all seven marry her, but leave no children and die. And then the woman dies in the resurrection. Therefore, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. Now, there is a lot to unpack in this question, especially for us. We are so far removed from the situation, it sounds strange. For some of you, this might be the first time you ever heard there was a commandment in the Bible about this, and it sounds barbaric and maybe even alien to you. So we need to do a little bit more work before we can even understand um, the intricacies of what they're asking. To summarize, I mean, a couple gets married, husband dies, and they don't have any children. The Mosaic law says if he's got a brother, brother needs to marry this woman and try to have children. Those children won't be his, they will be his brother's children. And so this happens in a situation through seven brothers, and they all keep marrying this woman and dying off, but no kids until they're just all dead. So the question they ask is, well, when they're all there, since they've all been married, who, who's going to still be married? Whose wife is she? So let's talk first about this Mosaic Law. You can read about it if you want to study it more on your own in Deuteronomy chapter 25. starts in verse 5, goes away to about 10. It'll give you kind of the whole context of where this question comes from. And to us, this law seems really weird. Kind of about you. I don't think I really want either of my brothers marrying my wife. Um, sounds strange, but for them, this law is really a compassionate one. And for the world that they lived in, they wouldn't have viewed this as weird and as patriarchal. They would have seen it as compassionate and as an act of justice. Why? There's a number of reasons they would have seen this as good. Um, first, because really even this law is given in an in interest of the woman for her good. 
And the reason, or one of the reasons this was seen as good too, is they do this to ensure, it says in Deuteronomy 25, that the brother's name would not be blotted out from the history of Israel. One of the worst fates that you can suffer in the ancient world is for your name to disappear and your family line to end. And it's not about you as an individual having your offspring. It really has more to do with your family and that your family would continue and that your family and your tribe and your people would not fade into history. And so this law about marriage was given so that when tragedy strikes, a family is not going to disappear, but that they will continue. It also is supposed to ensure that the widow is not going to be abandoned to death. Um, women at this point largely had to be provided for and protected by their husbands or by the men in their community. It's a very patriarchal world. Widows were almost always in poverty if they were able to live at all. And this law is written not so a woman is passed around like a piece of property, but to protect her and her well-being. And when you read the commandment, it says brothers are to treat her as they would their own wife and to love her and to care for her. And it's something that the women would want because it says in Deuteronomy 25, if a husband's brother refuses to do so, they can go up before the city, take off their shoe, throw it at him and spit on him and say in front of everybody, he's a deadbeat. He will not care for me and he will not provide for me and do what he should do. It's also a way to ensure that a family wouldn't go into poverty. Okay, in Israel, the land it would be pastor, it would stay in families. Every 70 years, everything gets passed back. Those who have their debts are all forgiven, and everyone who's bought new stuff, sorry, it goes back to who you bought it from. And so everything gets kind of redistributed. But if a family dies out, if their name disappears, where's that land go? doesn't go to anybody anymore. So part of what this law is, is to make sure that there won't be families who are left with nothing or land that is just up for grabs. And it's to help keep a family from falling into poverty. So that's all some background on, on why this actually, I think, is a good thing. You don't have to like the law. We don't practice it anymore. You don't need to. But what I do want you to see, and I want to push you, when you read laws in the Old Testament, and it sounds weird, and many of them do, and that's okay. We can acknowledge it. But don't just stop and go, oh, that's weird, and then move on. Well, wrestle with it, study it. Why is this here? Why would God command this? And why would the people who heard it celebrate and say, yes, we love this. This is a righteous, awesome, good thing. And study it that way. You need to hear it as somebody who would read it as something that brings liberation, not oppression. So that's the background. That's what we kind of need to know and understand their questions. So they bring Jesus this hypothetical scenario where a family is trying to obey God's law and how it plays out in the resurrection. Now, hypothetical scenarios are usually never a good place to begin if you're asking questions, especially if you think it's a good question. Um, in my personal experience, most of the time I find somebody asks a hypothetical question, it's really just a smokescreen because they don't want to ask you what they really think or what the question really is. Okay, pastor, suppose, you know, somebody cheated on their wife and, you know, they didn't know if they should confess it or not. I go, well, did you cheat on your wife? That's going to be my first question here. Okay, because don't give me your hypothetical scenario. What's the real question you're asking? Let's wrestle with that. And so that's what happens here is they ask a hypothetical question because they just want to point out how ridiculous what Jesus believes is. So this woman, husband dies, she keeps marrying, they all keep dying. Whose wife is she? It's the wrong question to ask about the resurrection. They're not asking the right questions at all. They're focused on the minutia, and even if we're not careful here, I can get sidetracked and get us sidetracked and focusing on the Mosaic law and marriage and how well that will not work in the resurrection. They're caring about tiny things. 
They're not wondering and asking and pondering the glory of the resurrection. They're not asking about the hope of the resurrection. They're worrying about obscure, incredibly unlikely things like this happening, which has probably never happened. And so I think we need to see that as the root of their problem. Their question, I mean, it's a significant one. It's a good thing. And sometimes we can, you know, tend to approach this passage as if it's all about whether or not marriage is going to be in heaven or not. Or what will our human relationships look like in the resurrection? And it's not their question, because their question is even more obscure than asking that one. Their question is more like if we were to go up to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, you know, in the resurrection, the new heavens, the new earth, um, you know, what, how many degrees is it going to be every day? You know, in the thermostats, when I look at it, is it going to say Fahrenheit or am I going to have to learn Celsius? You know, which one is going to be on there? What's the weather going to be? What will the climate be like? You know, hopefully it's not too rainy, Jesus. I mean, I like the rain, but sometimes, you know, not all the time. You know, I, I would prefer it to mostly just be sunny, about 73 degrees, a light breeze, maybe about one mile per hour, 30% humidity. You know, is it going to be like that, Jesus? Is that what it will be like? Or maybe we ask him, you know, about our resurrected bodies, you know, am I going to be limited to, you know, space and time or can I just think and teleport to Mars if I want to? Will I get to do that? You know, how old will we get to be in the resurrection, Jesus? Well, you know, we're going to be 25, we'll be 45. Well, I get to be at my physical peak when I really felt like I was in my prime. Maybe I never reached my prime, so maybe you can give me something better than that. You know, I mean, you'll be able to lift weights and build muscle. Will I just start at maximum muscle? Or, you know, maybe I don't want any at all. Can I pick and choose or can I change my mind if I want my body to be a little different? Might I have to get a haircut? You know, I find haircuts annoying, Jesus, so I'd like it if I could just pick a hairstyle and then just be done with it. It'll just stay right there. It won't grow. I won't have to keep going back. You know, we do a lot of singing and worship. Do we get to do other stuff too? You know, what kind of activities is there going to be? Can I get a schedule, Jesus, in the resurrection? You know, am I going to get to play golf? When I do play golf, am I going to be like I am now or will I be, you know, at my maximum potential? You know, because I like improving, so I'd like to kind of maybe start here, but I could get better a little faster. Um, those are the kind of questions that they're asking here. I want you to see it like that. They're the wrong questions to ask. Now, I don't want to give you the impression that it's bad to ask God questions. It's good to ask God questions. It's even okay to wonder and to be curious. And it's good to search. Um, but the reality is that God's word does not answer all of our questions. You will not find an answer in the Bible for every question that you ever could have. You will find an answer for all of the questions that you need to have answers to. But you're not going to find answers for all the questions you wish you had answers to. And that's our problem. Because we don't need to know. And the, the problem is that, isn't that these are bad things to wonder about, but the problem is um, this should not be the question that you ask Jesus when you get the chance to have some face-to-face -face time with him. I always get so annoyed in class or in, in you know, your big speaker, there's somebody that's an expert or at a conference and someone raises their hand to ask a question and they just ask an incredibly dumb question. That's just a waste of everybody's time. That's what they're doing here. Problem is, they're asking the wrong questions, and sometimes we ask Jesus the wrong questions too. There are much more eternally significant questions that we need to ask. So don't ask the wrong questions about the res resurrection and end up missing the resurrection. So the next part of our points here in your bulletin is don't ask the wrong questions about the resurrection and miss the resurrection. You don't need to worry about exactly what your body will be like in the resurrection if you're not going to get one because you're not invited. 
Okay, you see, this is kind of what Jesus' response is. He tells them they're not even in the right category. They don't need to be worried about the particulars of marriage and the resurrection. They should be worried about whether or not they're going to obtain the resurrection. Whether or not they will be resurrected. Don't need to worry about how other people's marriages will work out. You need to worry about if you'll be there when it happens. And this is where we can get distracted. If you think this passage is all about the internal logics and the specifics of the resurrection, you're going to be really disappointed. And you're going to miss what Jesus is trying to tell you. If you think Jesus is teaching us about marriage and the resurrection, you're going to focus on the wrong things. Jesus is trying to tell them, don't miss it. Jesus, But he doesn't ignore the question either. He does give them an answer. In 34, he says to them, Sons of this age, sons and daughters of this age, marry and are given in marriage. He's describing what life in this age is. And we live in the age of death. We do not yet live in the age to come. We don't live in the age of the resurrection. We live in an age of suffering and of sin. And in our day and age, there's a way that marriage and marrying works. And the problem is if we assume that our day today um, is going to be similar to how the day in the future is. As if the resurrection is going to be just like this age, but we just won't die again. Now, it's never how Jesus or the Bible describes the resurrection. It'd be a mistake if you imagine the resurrection that way. Now, it will, there will be many similarities to now, but it's going to be better in every way imaginable. So Jesus continues in 35, But those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection of the dead, neither marry or are given in marriage. So what will it be like? Well, there's not going to be marriage or people getting married. Why? In 36, for they can't die anymore. Because they're equal to angels and are sons and daughters of God, being sons and daughters of the resurrection. There's a lot we can read into the verse, verse, especially some people read too much in the idea that we will be like angels. It's not saying we will become angels, but we will be like them. They don't get married or have children. Who we, but who we are at our core is going to change, is what Jesus is trying to say. No longer will we be sons and daughters in the age of sin and death. Instead, we will be sons and daughters of God. Sons and daughters of the resurrection. And the life to come won't be just like now. Everything's going to be different, but it'll be better than we can imagine. Now listen to, I'll, I'll be honest. The, the idea um, that there's no marriage and no being given in marriage in heaven or in the resurrection used to kind of make me sad. And if, there, if I'm honest, there's some moments maybe it does too. And I'm probably not alone in that. Okay, if, because I love my wife, I've loved our life together, and I'd love for that life to continue. There are many of you who have spouses. Maybe your spouse has already gone ahead with you. And you're both waiting for the resurrection to come. But I, I think um, that part of the way that we as Christians can teach about marriage can also lead us to this feeling as well. And we can almost overemphasize marriage so much, we can make it seem like it is the pinnacle of human achievement or the pinnacle of human experience. That you're not really human unless you're married. At least in a good Christian marriage. And if we're not careful, now we may never say that out loud, or we might not even recognize that we're saying it, especially if we're happily married and we're saying things like it. But if I went around and asked those who were widows, and I asked those who were single, they might affirm, oh yeah, I hear that all the time. So we need to be, be careful here to, to not think that, or we can make it seem like the Bible teaches, you know, to be married is the highest and without marriage we're somehow less. Because when we think that, then the idea of the resurrection not having marriage makes it seem as if it's going to be missing something that we should have. That's not at all what Jesus wants us to see here. Okay, no one who attains the resurrection of the dead when Jesus returns um, is going to be disappointed by what they find there. They're going to be like, oh, 
shoot, it's not quite how I imagined it. I really miss blank. Okay, no one spending eternity with Jesus right now is wishing they could have something that they don't. And there's nothing that you can have or have had in marriage right now that you can't have in the life to come. There's no intimacy or closeness in a relationship and love that you have even with your spouse that won't be magnified a thousandfold in the resurrection, even if you aren't married anymore. We also have to realize, too, that I think our more modern view of marriage is not the way, it's not the view of marriage most in the world had, especially not at this point. You know, we can have a very romantic view of love. Um, that was not the reality for most people in human history. Might even be the reality for most people today. Now, again, I think we can, um, we can get off track and start asking, well, what if I still want to be married and they want to still be married? Do we get to do that? Do we get to have a special relationship? Or, or maybe marriage isn't something you want at all. Um, again, we're, we're missing the point. Because there is marriage in heaven. The resurrection begins with a wedding. Um, but the wedding isn't between you and your spouse. The wedding isn't between you and your true soulmate. The wedding is all of us, the bride of Christ, to the bridegroom. Jesus. Jesus could have answered their question with, well, who is she married to? And Jesus could have just said, she'll be married to me. <laughs> and you're all going to be married to me if you have faith. That's what it's going to be. And that is our hope. Our hope is not anything else. And if hearing that makes you disappointed, you're missing the point of it. And you might miss the resurrection. After all, the news um, that there's no marriage in heaven, that would have been a balm and a joy for many. Okay? Maybe some of you, that would be, there's joyous news. For most women in history, that would be freedom and liberation. And it's funny, but it's also true and it's sad. Now, many of their marriages were traps. They might have had to be married just to stay alive. Had to manage a marriage that they probably didn't choose, just to have some chance of having a meaningful life. I mean, read the way the Sadducees talk about the women in the story. It kind of reveals what they think about marriage and what they think about women in general. Their concern is not at all what her experience in the resurrection will be like. Whose wife will the woman be? Well, all seven had her as a wife. They talk about her like she's just something to be passed around and a piece of property. Well, whose wife do you think she wanted to be? That's not, well, who would be her husband? And in the resurrection, Jesus sets her and many women free. You no longer have to be trapped in an abusive marriage. You no longer have to be treated like a piece of property. Everyone gets to experience the joy and the wonder of the resurrection. That's a sidetrack, so I need to get us back on. 37, but that the dead are raised, and, and I got off because I, I do think it's important, and I didn't want to just ignore it. I don't like talking about it, but it's in here. We have to try to preach through God's Word, so we've got to hit everything in God's Word when it comes up, even if it's not what I would have picked to preach about today. Verse 37, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Not that he is the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Jesus is trying to show the foolishness of their interpretations, and he calls it the passage about the bush, because they didn't have, you know, chapters and numbers back then. You have to be more literal, and which one are we talking about? And they've missed the resurrection, even though it was right in front of them. Our God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of those who live and those who are still living. And we call him the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, not just to remember our history, not just to remember our ancestors are in the faith, not just because it's a great title. Um, we call them that to remember that they are yet alive. 
and that one day they will be resurrected and brought to new life along with us. But who does this resurrection apply to? This is really the point of what Jesus says. Um, to those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead. Those who are worthy. That's not everybody. So how can you be worthy? Can't be worthy through your own actions. Can't be worthy through your own righteousness or good deeds. You can't give enough to the poor or to charity to earn the resurrection. You can't put out enough good into the world to gain it. You can't be kind enough just to be deserving of it. There's only one way to be worthy and to obtain the resurrection of the dead. And that only comes as the gift of Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection for us. He came and was born. We've been going through the whole gospel of Luke. He came because we were all unworthy. He became because we were trapped in the age of death, doomed to die, but yet he died in our place. And he defeated the power of hell and death on the cross. And in the resurrection of the tomb, he broke the enemy of our souls and of life, and he brought the power of resurrection. And he didn't just come back to bring life for himself. He came to bring life and to bring the reality of the resurrection for all who trust in him. And the good news of the gospel is that this resurrection is available to anyone who wants it. It's for all who know who Jesus is. But the tragedy is the Sadducees, they're in danger of missing the resurrection. Because they don't understand who Jesus is. And if they don't get who Jesus is, they're going to miss it. Verse 39, some of the scribes answer saying, Teacher, you've spoken well. Um, and they no longer dare to ask him any question been reading for a couple weeks. They keep peppering him with their hardest questions, been challenging his authority. Now they just, they all tap. They give up. They have to admit, admit that Jesus has them, and they don't dare to ask him anymore. But Jesus isn't done with them. They might be done with him. But he presses them, and he has some questions to ask them too, because he doesn't want them to miss the resurrection. So our, our last blank here, or the kind of the completed thing is, you know, don't ask the wrong questions about the resurrection and miss the resurrection because you miss Jesus. Don't ask the wrong questions about the resurrection and then miss the resurrection because you miss Jesus. The Sadducees are missing Christ. They have the Messiah right in front of their faces, and they are about to miss out on the life that he offers. In 41, he says to them, how can they say that Christ is David's son? So this is all set up for the real question. It's going to seem like a sidetrack, but it's all about making sure they don't miss who Jesus is. The expectation from all Jews and all followers of God is that the Messiah will come from David's line. God promised to David that his son will rule forever, and they are waiting for his son to come back. This is why the Gospels all go at great lengths to explain that Jesus is the son of David. They give you his genealogy. He is the son and the king who was promised. So Jesus says, why do we think that? Because then he asks his real question in 42. Well, David says in the book of Psalms, which is Psalms 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? So it's kind of a true theological conundrum, unlike the, the random hypothetical they asked Jesus. Because it defies all of their logic and their theories about the Messiah and the promised Savior. Yet the answer is standing right in front of their faces. Their salvation is wrapped in flesh. They could touch him. They can hear his voice. They can ask him his, their questions, but they don't, and they miss it. 
So he asks them, how can the Messiah be the son of David and the Lord of David? It sounds very easy to us. We go, well, well duh, that's simple. He, he's God, but he's descended from David. Next question. Okay, it wasn't that easy for them. Because you would never call one of your descendants Lord. The elders are always ranked higher than those who come after them. It would have been an incredible, it would have been unlikely and a weird breach of etiquette to do that. And David is the greatest king that they've ever had. No one would debate in Israel's history. They had a lot of kings. Well, who's the number one king? I don't know. I like Solomon better. I don't know. I thought Josiah was pretty good. No, they all say David. David is the best. We're waiting for David's son to come again. But David declares that somehow one of his descendants is going to be even greater than him and yet older than him. And yet his Lord. How can that be so? Because Jesus is God. And Jesus is man and is his son. Now there's theological issues at stake. And I find that sometimes even theologians and scholars get confused at what Jesus is doing. Commentaries often do this. They get distracted by every rabbit that goes off. And you can read it and then wonder, well, I know what something means, but I don't know what any of this means anymore now. You know, how do we know that David wrote Psalm 110? You know, what do we do with the David Messianic Psalms? You know, was David prophesying knowingly? Did he know exactly how this would happen? Or did he just speak and God used it? Okay, none of that is the point. The point is, they don't rightly comprehend Jesus, who is right in front of their faces. They have the wrong expectations about the Messiah. They want a normal human Savior to come and deliver them from their pain and their suffering and their oppression under the Romans now. But Jesus has come, and Jesus was coming to save them from eternal pain and suffering. Jesus came to bring spiritual salvation, deliverance from sin, and resurrection. And the kind of Messiah that Jesus is, is beyond their comprehension. The wonder of the incarnation that we celebrated at Christmas is something that defies our minds. It should leave us in wonder. They don't get it, and they're not ready. And we too, we need to make sure that we understand who Jesus is. Jesus isn't just the son of David, he's the son of God. And there's plenty of people today who miss Jesus. If you think that Jesus is just a nice moral teacher, um, you don't get it. If you think that Jesus was just a really holy guy, you don't get it. If you think Jesus just provides a good example for us to follow, maybe we should all be like him, you don't get it. If you think of Jesus is maybe one way to get eternal life or resurrection or whatever it is that comes after us, but there's other ways, you don't get it. If you think I can just say a prayer to Jesus once and then I can live my life however I want and do whatever I want and I'm good, you don't get it. If you think Jesus is one God or one way and not the only one, you don't get it. And you're going to miss Jesus. Jesus is the one who is promised. Jesus is the only one who can provide eternal life. Jesus is the only one who can bring resurrection. That resurrection is available to everyone who comes, but you have to come through Jesus. You have to come through Christ. Not the Jesus that you wish he would be, the Jesus you imagine that he is, or your favorite kind of Jesus, but the Jesus that he is. And it might not be the Jesus that you like. The Sadducees didn't like him when he showed up. And this resurrection is available to all who come to Jesus in faith. And if we have faith, we can be considered worthy. Not based on our righteousness, but on the righteousness of Jesus. 
And I want and I hope and my prayer, ultimately, I have a lot of jobs as a pastor, but the only job that ultimately matters is making sure we're all ready for the resurrection. Preparing us for the day that death comes or Jesus returns and trying to make sure that you don't miss it. Because Jesus is coming. And every enemy will be defeated. He will defeat the wicked, the tyrants, and the dictators. And most importantly, he will defeat sin and death once and for all. So don't ask the wrong questions about the resurrection and miss it because you miss Jesus. So resurrection is coming only for those who believe in Jesus and Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. I'll ask you and end with the same question that Jesus asked Mary in our call to worship. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would help us to have faith. Lord, for those of us who have put our faith and our trust in you, maybe we have a long time ago. Lord, would you encourage and would you strengthen and would you remind us of our hope? Uh, our hope is not in what the weather will be like in the life to come. Our hope is in you. That you are the resurrection. That you are our life. And then whatever comes after, we trust and we hope it comes through you. And that you will be there. And if you are there, nothing else matters. Lord, and those who are there, who, who are here, who have not put their faith in you, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. Pray that you would show them your wonder, your beauty, and your goodness. And all the joy that comes for putting their faith in you. Lord, would you help us to believe, to trust in you, and to put our hope in the resurrection from the dead. Not in anything else this world has to offer. We pray this in the name of the Son of Man, the Son of David, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our only hope. Amen. Why don't you stand as we worship and praise our Savior one more time through song. Amen. Um, before I read our benediction, one quick announcement. Um, didn't want to give Dale one more and, or throw more things on the bulletin for Bree, but we are going to have our TBF 101 class um, on February 18th. That's going to be basically a class for those of you who are visiting or newer to our church and maybe you have questions about what we believe or why it is we do things the way that we do or you just have questions for me. Um, this would be for you to come, whether you're, and maybe you've been here for a while and you still have questions invite you to come to that as well. Um, we'll hang out together. We'll have a light lunch and hopefully um, I'll answer as many questions as I can. And our benediction is from 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, and it's true because of the resurrection that is coming. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God bless you. Go in peace.